You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So you could keep uh, Psalm 29 open if you've got it in front of you. Um, it's an interesting psalm, isn't it? And it raises a number of issues that I'd like to uh, talk about in this sermon. Um, one of them is, uh, what can we learn about God from nature? Because you might have noticed, it seems like the psalmist is probably reflecting on a thunderstorm uh, when he writes this psalm. Uh, the other thing I want to think about that I think the psalm raises is, what can we expect from God? So as believers in Christ, what can we legitimately ask from God and expect him to answer with a yes? And then the third thing, which is always interesting to ask when you read an Old Testament passage like this, is what has Jesus got to do with it? Yes, so is this just going to be a synagogue sermon, if you like, or do we end up with Jesus? Is it a bit of a stretch or can we see Jesus in in this psalm? Um, now, to orient us to the psalm, I want to do two things. Uh, think about movies and tell a joke. Now, don't always do that, so, but stay with me. We, it will be relevant. So uh, if you're my age and you've had children, your taste in movies has shifted to kids' movies. I don't know if uh, those of you with uh, kids will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, once a year, I go on a long flight to the US for a conference, and I get to watch movies that I want to watch, but the rest of the time, it's basically uh, Toby's movies. Uh, he's the one still at home. And there have been some really big and successful movies for kids, of course. Uh, Frozen, uh, Lion King, Toy Story, The Incredibles. But the one I want to think about uh, with you this morning is Aladdin's Lamp. Has anyone actually seen Aladdin's Lamp? I think Robin Williams has got a voice in there somewhere, doesn't he? Is he Aladdin or the lamp? or The genie. genie. Thank you. That's good. Um, Aladdin's Lamp uh, won um, lots of awards, was the highest grossing film in 1992, Um, And it was only surpassed by The Lion King um, some years later. And what intrigues me about these movies is that uh, adults don't mind watching them, by and large. I know at times you want to see a bit of uh, action as well, or some romance. But in a movie generally, these movies kind of touch something, don't they? So they, they they, they drill into universal themes that each of us experiences or thinks about. The theme with Aladdin's lamp is pretty obvious. It's this idea that rubbing a lamp, looking up to an impressive figure, grants your every wish, or at least three of them, as the case goes with Aladdin and his lamp. And I think that's something that all of us wonder about. And uh, it leads to the question, what wishes does God grant? And I'm not comparing God to a genie, of course, uh, but it's, it's a legitimate question. So there's something about rubbing a lamp and wondering what God might grant you that, uh, is, uh, um, uh, that taps into something for all of us. Uh, a droll Irish joke. An Englishman, a Scotsman, a Welshman and an Irishman were fighting in the First World War in the trenches. And one of them leant down and f- found a bottle, dusted off and lo and behold the genie came out. You with me? And uh, the genie says, I'll give you three wishes. And they look at each other a bit disappointed. He says, OK, I'll give you four. So uh, the Englishman says, I wish I was at home with my sweetheart in London. Whoop, off he went. And the Scotsman said, I wish I was at home in a pub with my mates. Whoop. 
and the uh, Welshman said, I wish I was at home walking on the moors and uh, enjoying the outdoors. Whoop! And the Irishman said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to wish for. What I'm going to wish I wish my mates are here to help me decide. <laughs> so, getting back to the text. It's fair to ask, what can we ask of God and expect a positive answer? What are the money-back guarantees of faith? I wonder if you could ask for two things. So we've had three wishes, four wishes, just two. You'll see why in a moment. Two things from God to help you in life, what would they be? Uh, would they be more money? Would they, uh, would they include success in some respect? Uh, would happiness be in there? Uh, would you choose an abstract noun like courage or hope, patience, joy, self-control? They're all things that uh, uh, I think I could do with um, uh, more of. But I think the two that are hard to go past are strength and peace. Okay, strength to get through life, coping with the hard things, and strength to get the important things done. And peace to face the inevitable trouble and hardship that comes with life generally and specifically with following Jesus. After all, Jesus promised in the world, you will have trouble. John 16, 33. Not exactly anyone's fridge magnet verse or bumper sticker verse, is it? So you've got uh, lots of examples, of course. You've got uh, the Lord is my shepherd on your fridge, maybe, or God shall love the world where two or three are gathered I can do all things through Christ in the world, you will have trouble. <clears throat> I don't think so. But um, it's, it's true of life, isn't it? And uh, when I look out among you, many of you are too young to have had much trouble. But uh, I can assure you of one thing, it's coming. And Psalm 29 verse 11 ends with those two promises. Did you notice? Psalm 29 verse 11, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And I think that's the message of the psalm, because in this psalm, the Lord promises to each one of us who trust in Christ those two things, strength and peace. Now, the question to ask in any praying for these things, of course, is to whom are you praying? And to really feel the force of this psalm and these requests, you have to read the whole psalm and understand it, because being reminded of who God is, is the greatest encouragement to pray. Um, do you struggle with praying? I certainly do at different times. Then the one thing that will encourage you to pray, I can guarantee, is learning about appreciating and uh, welcoming the message into your lives about who God is. Do you want strength and peace from God? Well, the big idea of the Psalms this. The God who displays his power and peace in nature gives power and peace to his people and we should praise him for it. Now I often ask students at college, uh, when you were at high school, did you prefer English or maths? And it's usually half and half, so I'll just do that quick survey here this morning. So uh, be honest, how many of you preferred English? How many of you preferred maths? Maths is of no use whatsoever for studying the Bible. <laughs> Sorry to tell you, although later there will be just a glimpse where it might be some help to you because basically what we're reading here is a poem. Yep. And it's like being in an English class in that sense, appreciating the poem and noticing its literary features and feeling its force as well as hearing its message. That's what we're trying to do. 
Now, what sort of poem is Psalm 29? Well, broadly speaking, there are two types of psalms. There's a few other little ones, but the two big ones are psalms where you ask something from God, petition God, and psalms where you praise God for something. So the petition psalms are sometimes called laments, which is a polite word for complaint. Uh, Psalm 13, for example, starts with, How long, O Lord, will you neglect me forever? How long before you turn your face to me? How long? So there are these psalms where we ask for things from God. But there are also psalms where we praise God, and there are two subtypes of those psalms. There are general praise psalms and specific praise psalms. So you might praise God for answering your prayer for healing, for forgiveness, for deliverance, uh, for, for all sorts of things in the Psalms uh, for winning over your enemies. Uh, But the psalm we're looking at here is a general praise psalm. It's not for anything specific. It's just praising God for who he is. And these types of psalms have three parts to them. There's a call to praise, a cause for praise, and then a conclusion. So it must be right, it alliterates. Yeah, so call to praise, you'll see in the first couple of verses there, ascribe to the Lord, etc. And then in verses 3 to 9, the cause for praise. And then the psalmist gives us a conclusion in verses 10 and 11. So it gives us the familiar shape of prayer in the Bible. You start with praise, you bring a petition of some sort, and we remind ourselves to whom we pray. So let's start by looking at the first couple of verses. So Psalms 20, Psalm 29's call to praise is remarkable in its scope. So the musicians will love these parts of the Psalms because they're the kind of things that the worship leaders or musicians say at the beginning of a church service when we're about to praise God in song. So Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 say, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So there are lots of examples of this kind of thing in the book of Psalms. If you want to look one up uh, later this afternoon, Psalm 113, for example, is another psalm where there's a call to praise. Now, the funny thing about this call to praise is we're not directly invited to praise God. Did you notice that? See in verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. So the call to praise is that we should join the angels, if you like, and praise God for something. And we're told in the opening verses what we're to praise God for, namely for his majestic power. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, the glory due his name. So in a sense, it's only indirectly that we're invited to praise God. So comprehensive and universal is this call to praise. And then at the end of verse 2, it says that we should praise God in the uh, splendor of holiness. So holiness can usually, and this is the way we normally think about it, be a kind of moral thing, that God is uh, perfect in terms of the way he behaves, he's always righteous. But there's another side to holiness, which is what we sometimes call transcendent holiness, that holiness is, uh, that God is not like us in some respects. So high is he above us that he can be described as holy. And I think that's what we've got in mind here. We praise God in the company of the angels for his glorious power. 
And uh, the power theme runs right through these first couple of verses because literally the heavenly beings are the sons of the mighty. Again, all about God's strength and power. Worship then is the response of created beings, both angels and human beings, to the sovereignty of God. It's best done in a group uh, and uh, it's what we did this morning. We acknowledge the power and majesty of God and we're also to do it remembering his holiness, the fact that he is unlike us in many respects. Then we move in verses 3 to 9 to what I'm calling the cause for praise. And at this point, the psalmist reflects on his experience of something in nature. Did you notice that? It actually happened last night. Did anyone wake up to the thunderstorm? Nat had to tell me about it because I could sleep through anything. So uh, that's what happened last night, this massive thunderstorm. And it's worth thinking about thunderstorms in general before we get to the, uh, the psalmist's description of this particular thunderstorm. There are many powerful displays of God in nature, aren't there? There's, when you go to the beach, you see the ocean. When you go to the mountains, you see the vast expanse of the range of mountains. And sometimes you get these things like thunderstorms. Uh, I studied at Dallas Seminary in the US, where I'd have to introduce myself, not as Brian Rosner, but as Brian Rosner. Otherwise, people wouldn't understand who I was. And uh, Dallas, if you know anything about it, you probably don't, is that it's uh, very flat and to the north, it, it goes for hundreds of miles, to use the American term, um, with nothing, basically. There's, there's not much in terms of uh, um, features that'll interrupt the landscape. So a thunderstorm would roll in from the north sometimes and I would stand on the veranda of my apartment and look out as it came and you'd sort of, you know how you can count a thunderstorm um, in terms of the difference between the lightning and the thunder? So it was a and then and then a little bit closer and then I would go inside. <laughs> And uh, wondering about thunderstorms, um, I, I don't know what your experience is. I also studied in Scotland where there was never a single thunderstorm. And the reason is because you need heat for thunderstorms and uh, it doesn't happen there. Now, my experience of thunderstorms as a young boy, they didn't particularly scare me, but they scared my mother. So my mother was terrified of a thunderstorm. So she would hop into bed whenever a thunderstorm came and Lynn and I would get in with her and try and comfort her during the thunderstorm. It was a little role reversal moment, really. And comparing thunderstorms to God even happens, I don't know if it happens in your idiom and experience, but uh, people talk about the thunder as God moving the furniture upstairs. Yeah. So it's not an uncommon thing to compare a thunderstorm to the power of God. And here we have in Psalm 29, this massive thunderstorm, but we'll also see an earthquake and a flood as reasons for praising God. <clears throat> so verses three to nine, we see God's power is displayed in a massive thunderstorm and an earthquake. Uh, see verses three and four. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Now the voice of the Lord is being compared to uh, the, th the clap of thunder and the waters or the many waters, as it says in the end of verse 3, are the Mediterranean Sea. So I don't know what your geography is like, but think of Israel, the Holy Land, and to the, the west. Yep, to the west. 
You've got the Mediterranean Sea and this massive thunderstorm is brewing over the sea in verses three and four. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So God's powerful word brings up the storm. And the voice of the Lord, as I said, is the thunder of the storm. And we read about lightning in verse seven with the flames of fire, which I think that's, that's what the uh, psalmist is referring to. So it's the Lord who's commanding the elements of nature in this terrifying display of power. So out of the west of Israel, a thunderstorm is raging that in verses five to seven, God's powerful word causes the storm to rage and includes a frightening earthquake. See in verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes with flames of fire. Now the cedars were the strongest and most majestic trees, especially in the north of Israel, which I think is going to be important in a moment. And Lebanon and Syrian refer to a mountain range in the north of Israel, Mount Hermon, the tallest mountains in the north of Israel. So together we get the most impressive and prominent features of the landscape are kind of dashed to pieces with the power of God in this storm. Uh, the landscape skips like a calf, uh, which is probably a reference to an earthquake, which is accompanying the uh, thunderstorm. So I'm showing my age here, but it does remind me of a Queen song, Thunderbolt and Lightning, very, very frightening. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? So let's just step back from the psalm. The psalmist is looking at something that's going on in nature and he thinks we can learn something about God from the power of nature. Now, um, if you came to college, which I hope you will, we'll uh, teach you about two things called general revelation and special revelation. Yeah, you can probably guess what they are. General revelation is what can we learn about God generally from the creation, from everything around us. Special revelation has to do with what God did through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Israel, the covenants, through Jesus. What can we really know about God from general revelation? Well, according to the psalm, one thing we can know is that he is powerful. And interestingly, Paul in Romans 1 says something very similar. Paul in Romans 1 says that God's invisible qualities can be seen from the creation of the world. Then he gives us two, eternal power and his divine nature. So the two things you can know from the created order, from nature, from the power and the vastness and size of our world and universe are that God exists and that he is powerful. He is and he is powerful. Now I mentioned I'm off on summer holidays in a few weeks time and my head is kind of moving in that direction. Nat and I have just one little guy at home, Toby, who's 12 now. And uh, like any child, he, when we get to the beach, he doesn't stop to think it's too cold to go in. He just goes straight in. Yep. Takes his boogie board with him and he's off. So here we are last year at Seven Mile Beach. Uh, I think it's south of Wollongong somewhere. Anyone been there? And uh, one up the back. And um, it's a beautiful beach with a really consistent... Uh, um, set of waves that comes in constantly. So down one end of the beach, they're having surfing lessons. They're only about this high. 
and there's quite a long way out and they come in for a long way. And I'm what Nat calls the swimming parent. Yep, every couple needs a swimming parent, the one that has to go in no matter what the weather, and that's me. <laughs> so I'm standing there about up to here in the water and Toby's going past me on wave after wave, good 30, 40 metres, just standing there. And I look out to sea and I think, man alive, the ocean is huge, is it not? It is just massive. And there's a sense in which it's sometimes good to feel diminished. And I almost have a tear in my eye as I think about the vastness of the ocean and this world. And the fact that we can know from the created order, uh, what were the words? The eternal power and divine nature of God. And at that moment I panic and look around, where's Toby? And uh, fortunately he's just doing what he's doing and it's pretty pointless me standing there getting cold. Anyway, <laughs> but that's one thing I think we can do with this psalm, friends, is to take seriously opportunities to appreciate the power of God in, the, in nature. And because we live in cities, it's much harder to do so. The stars are a good opportunity, but unfortunately uh, that's spoilt through light pollution. So you need to go off somewhere to actually see the stars these days. But we should take those opportunities, not just to be, if I can be a bit corny, gobsmacked by the world, but God-smacked by the world. Yep, so when, when you're on holidays next time, take a deep breath and look at what's around you and appreciate God's eternal power and divine nature from what he has made. Now, in verses 8 and 9, God's powerful word causes the storm to subside. See verse 8? The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and in his temple all cry glory. It's finally over. Yep, it's a pretty big thunderstorm because the poor little deer gives premature birth to its, what's a baby deer, doe? To its, is it? Fawn, fawn, something. To a little deer. <laughs> the, the little deer pops out. So ferocious is the storm, unless you're reading the NIV. Anyone got an NIV? Verse 9? What does it say in verse 9? <clears throat> yes, it doesn't. Uh, uh, the storm doesn't make the deer give birth. It twists the oaks. Now, this is a really techie, nerdy point, so don't panic. So basically, the Old Testament's in Hebrew. When they first wrote the Old Testament, there were no vowels, just consonants. Bit weird, eh? And the vowels are called, called pointings. So they put the pointing. Hundreds of years later, they put the pointing on those consonants. Do you know why they, did, they put them on then? Because up till then, any decent reader of Hebrew didn't need the pointings. It just got in the way. You would just read the consonants, no problem. I can tell you I'm not there. Now, interestingly, the word for deer with the same consonants can be pointed to mean deer or tall tree. Yeah, sorry about that, but there you go. So that's why the versions differ in English. And if you've got an ESV with footnotes, it'll probably tell you or strips the forest. <clears throat> what was it again? Twist the, oaks. Twist the oaks, yes. Twist the oaks. But nonetheless, it's another powerful display of God in nature, is it not? That the storm is so powerful that the poor little deer gives birth prematurely or the oaks <clears throat> are twisted. So... 
in response to this terrible storm finally uh, going away and coming to peace, in God's heavenly temple, the saints and the angels cry, glory. Recalling the beginning of the psalm, uh, where it says in verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So the end of the storm does remind us, though, that God can not only show his power in nature, but by resolving that power and bringing again a, a state of uh, much more calmness, that he can bring peace. And the storm does remind us that God can bring peace out of the most unsettling situations, the most disturbing and terrifying events. As Psalm 30 verse 5 puts it, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's the nature of biblical hope. It doesn't mean that we won't move through very, very difficult times in our lives, but there is hope for us. God can give us strength and peace to persevere. Now, in 1984 to 88, I was a student in Dallas, as I mentioned, and I got there in August 84. So the next July 85 was a big moment, of course, the 4th of July in America, yep. So Independence Day, I called it Rebellion Day. Uh, that didn't go down well. <laughs> but nonetheless, I was watching TV that night and Ronald Reagan was sitting on board a destroyer in New York Harbour. It was a great moment and uh, there's some speeches and then the brass military band broke out into a tune and I was expecting... Yep, the uh, Star Spangled Banner. But instead, this is what I got. You won't believe it. I think, what happened to rebellion? I mean, they're doing the, the, the uh, um, God Save the Queen. Does anyone know what went on? The Americans, believe this or not, took God Save the Queen and wrote a different tune, a different uh, uh, lyrics to it. And I'll read you the lyrics. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. So what's happening here? They're saying very subtly, stick it to the English. <laughs> most Americans don't even realise that that tune is uh, God Save the Queen. And apparently most colonials don't realise that uh, it's my country, tis of thee. What's my point? Psalm 29 is actually like my country, tis of thee. It's polemic. Polemic, remember, is where you say, not this, but something else. So the polemic of my country, tis of thee, was saying, not the English, but our freedom as Americans. Now, how does that relate to the psalm? The focus of the storm, as I've already mentioned, is in the north of the land, and it operates as a piece of polemic against Canaanite religious beliefs because the storm god Baal was in the north of the land of Israel or in Canaan and it's not the voice of Baal that causes the storm but the voice of the Lord. Now the pictures of Baal which we have from some ancient uh, inscriptions and texts portray him as standing on the waves of the water and in one hand, he's holding the spear of lightning. And then he has a club which creates the thunder 
in the other hand. Yep. So in 1 Kings 18, for example, when the people wanted rain, they cried to Baal. When it rained, they credit Baal for the rain and thunder. And in fact, in some Canaanite texts, it says that the God of Baal had seven peals of thunder when he created these storms. Now, those of you who are good at maths and like counting things, that's about as far as I got with maths. Did you notice how many times voice of the Lord appears in our psalm? Have a look. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord. Through to verse 9, there are seven of them. Now, that can't be an accident, can it? So basically, brilliantly, I think, the author of the psalm has taken these literary conventions, these myths about Canaan and uh, Baal, and shown that uh, it's not Baal who controls the weather and the storm, but rather it's the Lord. So just like my country tis of thee sticks it to the English, Psalm 29 sticks it to the God of Baal, to the idols. So the subtle message of the psalm is the big idea of all of the psalms, namely, who is like the Lord? The Lord is supreme. The Lord is incomparable. The Lord reigns. So friends, we're told from this psalm not just to praise God that he is powerful, but to praise him because he alone is powerful. Not just because he is powerful, but because he is all-powerful. As Psalm 45 verse 5 puts it, I am the Lord and there is no other. Um, in Psalm 29, a, th a thunderstorm might scare the bejesus out of you. The psalm is meant to scare the bejesus into you. Or the Jesus into you, if I can put it that way. That, I wasn't sure if that line would work. Apparently it didn't. We'll move on. <laughs> the point is this. We praise the God of power in contrast to the idols. Now, in our day, the impotent idols are the idols of personal success, of fame, of money, of human might, of technology. The one consistent message in the, in the Bible about idols is this, and it's worth hearing. Idols are gods that fail. It's futile to worship an idol. So the message of the Christian faith is one that everyone needs to hear because the satisfaction and the security that people seek from idols in our time will not deliver. And that's what we see in this psalm. It's not the God of Baal who is powerful. It's the God of the Bible. It's the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to the power and peace he offers us and we started there in verses 10 and 11. To whom do we pray for power and peace to persevere through the storms of life? Verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, not Baal. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people May the Lord bless his people with peace. Do you need strength at the moment? Do you need peace? I certainly do. And uh, this is a wonderful message that the psalm brings to us, that the God who is almighty and tolerates no rivals can give us that strength and peace. Interestingly, the flood he refers to may well be the flood of Noah's day because the word flood is only used there and here in the whole Old Testament. So the psalmist recalls the great demonstration of God's power in nature, namely Noah's flood. So we've had a thunderstorm, an earthquake, and now a flood. 
And God as creator of all things can bring order out of chaos in creation, in new creation and in our lives too. And verse 10 very encouragingly says the Lord sits enthroned not just then but forever. He is in control over all things at all times. It might not seem it sometimes but with the eyes of faith we can trust him. So verse 11 is the lesson for us as God's people. The God who shows his power in the storm and in the flood and in the earthquake gives strength to his people as well. The Lord who can command the storm to die out in the wilderness can give peace to his people. There is no fury that he cannot calm. To whom do we pray for power and peace? The supreme and glorious God of power and peace seen in these awesome displays in nature. Now, what's, just to finish off, what's Jesus Christ got to do with it? Well, I think it's no accident that Jesus Christ demonstrates in the New Testament Gospels the same power over creation. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus walks on the water. His death is accompanied by an earthquake and awesome displays of nature's power. For in Jesus we find the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who sits enthroned over the flood as king forever. He's the one who came announcing the kingdom of God coming with him. And we can pray to him with confidence for the power and peace to persevere to the end. In fact, if in the Old Testament this great thunderstorm is the demonstration of God's power, in the New Testament the resurrection is the demonstration of God's power because he was raised by the power of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians. Now, don't mishear me. The great power that God offers us might end up manifesting itself in wonderful deliverances and even miraculous things that can happen in our lifetime. But the norm for God's power is given to us in Colossians 1.11. Colossians 1.11 says this, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's a bit underwhelming in the end, isn't it? But that's what God promises us in this life as we await the return of the Lord Jesus. Patient endurance. But as usual, the Bible is incredibly realistic because to be patiently enduring does take great power. And that's the power that God promises to each one of us if we ask in faith. The Lord Jesus sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord Jesus Christ sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord Jesus give strength to his people. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless his people with peace. Amen.